Well, some of you guys know this about me uh, already, um, and some of you don't, so I'll just tell you. I'm kind of a nerd at heart, um, but not like a normal nerd, not like a, a nerd that likes like numbers and computers and technology and things like that. I'm, I'm more like the kind of nerd that loves like homesteading stuff and like survival techniques. Like if you were left alone in the Alaskan wilderness with like nothing but a Swiss army knife, how would you build your log cabin? You know what I mean? Like that kind of a nerd. And so I, I love thinking about, you know, apocalyptic scenarios. There, there's a, a, a show on Hulu because we, you know, we, we're cheap. We don't pay for cable. We do the, the internet thing, right? Um, there's this show on Hulu called Revolution, and it's like this post-apocalyptic America where the lights go out all around the world and we're set back to like the 1800s. And, um, you know, everybody's got to sort of relearn without technology, without the use of electricity and power, how to live. And so people get really ingenious and in, in how they do that. And of course, you know, there's always a love triangle and, you know, this, so it's good for the wife, nice work for the husband, for the man. And, um, you know, I love the idea of also uh, Red Dawn. Have you guys ever seen, the, uh, not, not the newer one. The newer one is, you know, it had a cheesy, the, the, the kid in there. I, I, what was his deal? Like, did he not know how to talk normal? I, I don't get that. But, um, the, you know, the original Red Dawn is like uh, Russia invades you know, and this, this group of teenage kids like takes on with guerrilla style tactics the Russian military and starts sort of like winning these battles and taking back Americans as, uh, who've been held captive and I, I love that. The whole idea of an invading army and what would it look like if an invasion actually happened? What changes in your thinking, in your reality? What changes when your world gets flipped upside down and everything that you thought was is no longer? It's all different. Things like that, scenarios like that, make me just sort of kick back and, and, and wish in a way that we would have like a massive solar flare and everybody's smartphones would just die and, and we would go back to living in the you know, early 1900s. Now, Kathy over here who was raised Mennonite, she's like, no, please, no, that's my childhood all over again. Uh, no, I, I, I love that kind of an idea. Now, having said that, I want us to consider something uh, for our, our own thinking tonight. And that is, what does it mean that the kingdom of God has invaded earth? What changes? What changes in our thinking? How, how does that affect reality? What does that look like for us as believers? We're tracking through the gospel of Mark and we're going to be continuing to kind of check through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But tonight for our consideration, we're going to take a look at just a few short verses and we're going to, we're going to think about, okay, if the kingdom of God is breaking forth, if it's, if it's been inaugurated by the king himself, 
And that kingdom is going to usurp or take over all the kingdoms of the earth. That God's master plan is that there would be neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, bond nor, or, nor free. That there would be one kingdom under one umbrella, under one king, under one rule. What does that look like to say that we believe that the kingdom of God is here now already and not yet fully fulfilled. Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in the seventh verse. Giving a little context to um, this passage here, Jesus has just uh, left Nazareth, his hometown, and... um, And Nazareth is the place where he experiences rejection among the people that knew him, the people that uh, grew up around him. You know, little wannabe Rabbi Jesus down on the street corner at 12 years old talking with the other rabbis about scripture and deep things. The other little Jewish boys, they didn't get it. They're like, why don't you like sticks and rocks and wrestling why are you nerding out on, on scriptures and wanting to hang out with these rabbis and stuff? It, it doesn't make sense to me. And so when Jesus, you know, kind of comes into his own hometown and he starts talking to them about the kingdom and he's insinuating that he's the king of the kingdom, understandably, these people were like, I don't know, you've always been a nerd. <laughs> I... I just am not sure about you and your, your kingdom. You know, you don't even know how to wrestle. What's the deal? Well, he gets rejected there, but he takes his little band of brothers, his group of 12. 12 is significant, by the way, because it is synonymous with the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament. Jesus on purpose, and in particular, picks 12 apostles or disciples that he, that he commissions for a special work. And those 12 are representative. He's saying, he's making a statement, a political statement, if you will, that the kingdom that God began with Israel is now being confirmed and carried on through me. Okay, you following? So you have these 12 uh, guys that are sent out by Jesus in this, in this short little section here between verses 7 and uh, verses 13. So let's go ahead and read through it, and then we'll kind of break it down. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two tunics and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, "Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them." And so they went out 
and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So let's, let's imagine for a moment you're Jesus. You believe, because you are, that you are the king of the universe. First of all, it's a big claim to even wrap our minds around, don't you think? Not just Israel, not just Galilee, the universe. And, and then you, you've got a plan. You're going to save the world, right? You're going to save the world. How do you do that? What do you do? Billboards? Radio commercials. Cool website. How do you do that? Well, the cool website, the commercials, if you will, the, the stuff of Jesus' day was personal reference. Jesus takes 12 of his disciples and he sends them out. Now he sends them out, interestingly enough, in pairs. He sends them out in pairs. Now, you know, there's lots of speculation as why pairs? Is it, you know, is it significant of the ark and two by two? And the, I don't know. I don't know any about any of that. But I know this. With pairs, there's accountability. Um, with pairs, there's accountability. When, when I went to uh, Cave Junction in 2000 to, to plant a church, um, me and a friend of mine, uh, Tano Haragi, who was uh, a fellow school of ministry friend of mine, we moved out there together. And uh, when we first started, you know, I had a, I had a girlfriend at the time, and she, I mean, she, she was wonderful, but she required a lot of my attention. You know, she eventually became my wife, which was, which was awesome. So it worked, you know, just for the record. <laughs> but she required a lot of attention. So, you know, Tano is there and he's laboring with me. And, and then finally one day Tano's like, dude, hey, we're here to plant a church, not flirt with chicks. You see, I, I was a little distracted with my wife at the time, you know, or who wasn't my wife at the time. I was distracted with her because I wanted her to be my wife, you know, later. I was distracted. And you know what he did? He pulled me up. He said, hey, get your head in the game. We're on a mission here. We've got something to do. You need to be present. This is what God's called you to. That is something God will take care of. But this is what God has called you to. Now, get on the ball, man. I needed that. I needed accountability. I needed somebody in my life that would say to me the things that are not, not easy to say. Somebody that loves me enough and cares about the outcome of my life enough to say, hey, Jeremy, you've got work to do. There's something here for you to do. So Jesus, in his, in his wisdom, he sends the, the apostles, the disciples out in twos. One, for accountability. If you're taking notes, not only for accountability, but second of all, for accuracy. For accuracy. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, it tells us that the legal requirement for a uh, verifiable witness, something that would hold up in a court of law, if you will, was that there would be two witnesses, 
of an event or of the truth. And so as Jesus is sending his disciples out, recognizing that, that their testimony, that their, their witness to the kingdom of God coming was going to need more than one witness, he sends out two so that it might be established that this is real, that this, there's something to this. It's not just some oddball disciple from Galilee who just shows up after hanging out in the desert with you know, his hippie tribe and, and then it's like, hey, the kingdom of God is here. And people are like, well, who are you? It's just one of you? you know? In the same way that if I was just you know, driving down the street and I see one you know, moderately homeless looking person telling me, you know, Jesus is coming back today. I'm going to have a tendency to go, well, who, who are you? Right? What, what authority do you have? How do I know this is true? Now, if two guys approach me, we're going to have a conversation. I'm going to take a little bit more seriously. It's not just one oddball whack job who's out there. Maybe there's two of them, right? <laughs> I have to think about it now. So for accuracy, for accountability. Thirdly, for protection. You see, when you go out to do business for the king, don't you think you're going to encounter some opposition? Don't you think you know, some stuff might happen? Possibly that you have an enemy who wants to take your head off and do whatever he can to trip you up and, and foul you out? So that you can't do business for the king. And so Jesus sends them in pairs for accountability, for accuracy, for protection. I would say that there's also a fourth reason. And that's this, for passion. For passion. You know, um, when you're by yourself, it's so easy to grow passionless. Those of you who, who maybe had a season in life where you've, you've gotten out of fellowship, you've gotten out of the rhythm of, of having people that, that stoke the fire of your heart around you, you know what I'm talking about. It, it's like when you take a, a, a piece of charcoal from the barbecue and you set it out off to the side. What begins to happen? Does it burn, continue to burn all the way through? No, it, it begins to go out. You see, we're, we're built the same way. We're made for community. We're made for togetherness. And, and there is a fire that builds in us when we go in groups, when we go in pairs, when we have people around us who are, who are continuously prompting us to do better, to do more, to excel, to, to give our all for the king because he's worthy of it. I mean, in a sense, isn't that what church is? The gathering of God's people. I, it's one thing to worship privately in your home, to, to raise your hands in your, in your office or to bow your knee at your couch. That's, that's one thing. But when you get in a group of you know, 200, 300, 500, 600 people and everybody's arms are raised or every knee bows and you're all worshiping together, isn't that different? Isn't there something unique? And doesn't that ignite the passions of your heart? And cause you to be zealous. So Jesus sends these guys out in pairs. And he sends them out to sort of expand his kingdom. Now he sends them out not just in pairs, but he sends them out also with something else. Did, did you catch what it said there in, in the scriptures? It sent them out and he, and he, he said it sent 
he sent them out two by two, and he what? What did he do? He gave them authority. He gave them power. Now, he sent them with authority. He sent them first of all in pairs, and then he also sent them with authority. Now, I, I've kind of wrestled with this, to be honest, a little bit. Like, to what extent does a person have authority to speak on behalf of God? You know, because there's a lot of confusion about this, right? I mean, I can flip channels on, on a TV and come up with guys who claim to have all kinds of authority from God. How do we know what's the real stuff? How do we understand that? Well, I don't know that we can always discern it perfectly, but I think there's several check marks that we can see along the way. The disciples are sent out with authority. Now, to have authority means that they are representing the one through whom authority was given. In other words, if this is Jesus and he's the king and the kingdom that he's establishing is being established through these people that he sends out, they carry then with them the endorsement, the decree, and the power that the king himself holds. Does that make sense? Because they represent him. Now, if they use that authority for their own purposes, if they, they go out and they go, no, it's really not about his kingdom, it's about my kingdom. Are they still under that authority? Are they? No, they're not. They're, they're then riding on their own authority. Here, these disciples are sent out with authority. Authority means that they're representing the one who has all authority. Now, to have authority, you must be under authority. The, the only authority that you have is the authority by which you submit yourself to the authority above you. Okay? I, I mean, we all know this intuitively. This is the way it works in business, in the workforce. This is the way it works in a home, right? To have authority... That authority comes from somewhere else. It comes from a higher sense of authority. And to the degree that you are in alignment with that authority, then you have authority. If you are out of alignment with that authority, you no longer have it. You no longer have the blessing, if you will. And here, the disciples are under the authority of Jesus. That is, his mission is their mission. His call to obedience is what they want to accomplish. The things that he's told them to do, that's what they're going to do. They're not going to establish their own work. They're not going to establish their own trip, their own thing. They're not coming out from under that authority. They're in alignment with it to do what he has called them to do. Now, interestingly enough, you know, um, because I do... You know, a, a, a lot of the counseling here at Heritage, one of the things that I do see happening a lot of times is, is a real authority struggle, sometimes in a home. I see that there is an authority battle that is taking place as to who actually has authority in the home. And I would just say, just as a, as a way of sort of helping us understand that, that when a husband is under the authority of Jesus... Okay, 
he automatically, as a consequence of that, as just a part of his being in alignment with the nature and character of Jesus, automatically has authority in the home. When parents are wrestling with authority in the home, most often that is because it's really a power struggle for them. It's not a submission to the authority of Jesus. What they're really wrestling with is, I want my will done in my kid's life. What I want is, is a certain measure of peace or tranquility in my home. What I, what I want is all of these things, rather than partnering with the work that Jesus wants to do in their house and coming under his authority with his agenda and saying, okay, listen, we can fight about what your curfew is, but at the end of the day, I am the one who is responsible to God for what happens in our home. And it's not about me and you duking this out and fighting this out. This is about me surrendering to Jesus as your parent and caring for you. And you then are under obligation not just to me, but to surrender to Jesus' authority over you. You see, son, you see, daughter, you are a disciple of Jesus. And you're either going to come under his authority or not going to come under his authority. Sometimes the authority struggle is in, is in the church. Sometimes we see people, you know, want to do their own thing. And, you know, they've got their own agenda with, with God's kingdom. That's not how it works. God has always, always delegated authority for his purposes and for his glory. It's been that way throughout history and it continues to be that way. He covers his people through love. And sometimes people claim to have authority. They are like the disciples being sent out into the world. And, 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 and they make claims like that they have apostolic authority. They, they put themselves in a position of saying, hey, listen, because I've been commissioned by Jesus, I can do whatever I want. You know, and sometimes that's give me your wallet. <laughs> Right? Give me everything that's in your wallet. Um, sometimes it's like making big boasts about what, um, what demons have to do in their presence and, and, and wielding this sort of um, kingdom enchantment. I guess that's a way of saying that. Like almost a form of sorcery. Like I have power to cast out demons, to heal the sick. And they, they, they lay claim to those things. Interesting, though, that um, one of the people that's sent out with Jesus is a guy named Judas Iscariot. You know, one of the things that we often make the mistake of, you know, intermixing is that because a person appears to have authority, that that's the same as authenticity. And I want to tell you, authority and authenticity are not the same thing. I think of the book of Acts in chapter 19 in verses 11 through 20. There were the seven sons of Sceva. These were these, these guys who, they heard that the apostles were casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And so these, these guys come and, and they're like, they, they find a kid who's, you know, demon possessed. And they're like, we, we cast you out by Jesus in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. That guy over there. 
no actual connection with Jesus themselves. They thought it was like a magic trick. They thought it was like a power they could wield. They, they thought it was like the force. You know, that they're, they're like neck pinching people and, you know, that's what they thought it was like. It's a great story if you want to check it out because the way the story ends is that the demon-possessed man jumps on top of them, beats them senseless, rips their clothes off, and they run away naked. Listen. Authority and authenticity are not the same thing. See, to have authority is to know that it is attached to a commission. The authority of the apostles, what they had was specific for a time and purpose. They did not wield the authority that they had at will. In other words, they, they, didn't, they couldn't just go on perpetually just grabbing demon-possessed dudes and, and ripping demons out of them. That, that wasn't the way that was. They couldn't just go into a, a local hospital and raise up all the sick that were there. Although God did miraculous things like that throughout the book of Acts and throughout the Gospels. But they didn't continue to maintain that and have that all the time. To the degree that they were commissioned for a specific task, they were empowered by God to accomplish it. When that task was done, their authority was done. Now, throughout Jesus' life, he made it clear that the authority that he had was not even from him, that he himself was under authority. When you think about some of the statements, let me read some of the things that he said. He, he, said. he said, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should, what I should say and what I should speak in John twelve forty nine. How about this in John 7, verses 15 through 19. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Here's another one in John 12, verses 48 through 50. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say, and what I should speak. So listen, authority is not the same as authenticity. Judas was among this group of people doing the signs, doing the miracles. He's present when the demons are being cast out. It's the same kind of warning that we see in, in Matthew chapter 7 when, when Jesus says, not all who come to me on the last day will get to be partakers with me in the kingdom. For some will say, Lord, Lord, I mean, we, we cast out demons in your name, didn't we? We did mighty works and miracles in your name. We, we, we were there when all this stuff was going down and your name was being proclaimed and, and people were being healed. We were a part of that. And he's like, yeah, but I, I don't know you. We, we don't actually have fellowship. Matter of fact, I, I, I never knew you. 
You know, here's one of the scariest things about being a pastor. You can put together a good sermon without the Holy Spirit. You can do ministry week in and week out without ever a personal dependence upon Jesus. Today, I'm, you know, I'm writing this sermon. I'm like three quarters of the way done. I'm like, I haven't prayed. Not even one time. It just like dawns on me. I'm, I am, I'm doing all the work here, Right? I'm exegeting scripture, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking up words, I'm reading commentaries, I'm Googling stuff, I'm writing notes, I got a great working outline, it looks awesome, I'm stoked on the outline, and then I realized I haven't actually ever talked to Jesus about it. And it's his sermon for his glory. Like, guys, that can happen. You know, I tell you, The life that is powerless is the life that is disconnected. Authority from God in life cannot be manufactured. There is no substitute for abiding in Christ. He put it this way. He said, I'm I'm the vine, right? I'm the stock. I'm the life source. And if you abide in me, you are going to bear fruit. It's just going to happen. But if you don't, be cut off, cast into the fire. That's crazy. Listen. What God has called us to is, is a partnership. It's like... It's like the partnership of a glove and a hand. A glove was never meant to do work on its own. It was made to be a recipient of the hand that gives it power. That's its purpose. Folks, you and I are gloves. And the only authority that the apostles had, that the disciples had, to go out and cast out demons was the authority that came to them through relationship with Jesus and being sent by him to do a work. Now, they could have gone. Judas went and had no power whatsoever. Judas even partook in miracles. He himself was not a partaker of the fellowship that comes with being that glove in the hand of God. It doesn't mean that he wasn't around miracles. It doesn't even mean that he wasn't a part of praying and being a part of when the miracles are happening. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that obviously the power And the fellowship that comes from God is being wasted on him. Because there is no fellowship. There is no abiding. Now, Jesus sends these guys out. He sends them out in pairs. And he sends them out with authority over unclean spirits. And then he charges them. He gives them a, a, a command. He sends them 
And he says, don't take anything with you. Take no food, take no money. And I thought this was kind of funny. Don't put on two tunics. I looked that up, did a little word study. I'm like, what's up with the two tunics? What's that all about? Well, basically, if you were going to go camping or end up staying the night over somewhere, you wore long underwear. So Jesus essentially tells him, don't wear underwear. I thought that was funny. (laughs) He's like, hey, don't even take underwear with you. Go, right? I'm going to take care of you. You're not going to be sleeping on the ground. You're not going to be stuck out in the cold. The provision will be there. Take no shelter. (laughs) Here Jesus sends these guys out and he sends them out with nothing. A command to go, a buddy to go with them, authority, and nothing. (laughs) Let's just imagine for just a moment, you're the disciples, right? You're you're there. Jesus is like, guys, hold up, hold up, hold up. We come up. All right. Okay. Here we are in the middle of nowhere. Right? I got this plan. The kingdom of God is breaking forth into the world. You guys are part of my plan to bring the kingdom of God. So this is what we're going to do. You're with you. You're with you. You're with you. You're with you. And um, go out. Tell everybody, repent. You're sinners. You need to repent. Oh yeah, don't take anything with you. Don't take food. Take a walking stick. You're going to need that. Shoes. You're probably going to need some shoes. Don't take underwear. Yeah, that, that'll be... That'll be um, that, that should do it. All right. Break. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the, the disciples like... <clears throat> so... Yeah, I mean... You got a direction, maybe? You know, you want us, which way? Uh, do you know anybody over there? <laughs> be nice if we, you know, we just crash somebody's pad. <laughs> be kind of nice if we had, you know, a destination. No, no. You just go wherever, it doesn't matter where. No. Just go. Don't don't bring anything. No. I'm gonna take care of you. Now, I'll tell you, when I was younger, when I was younger, this was easier for me to believe. You see, when I was when I was nineteen, I was fresh out no, I was twenty one, I'm sorry. Fresh out of the school of ministry at Applegate. And you know, I I I just had this real simple faith. I looked at the, I looked at this book and I'm like this is what Jesus did with his guys. I'm one of his guys. Let's go. Let's do it. So literally, I mean, I, I, everything I own fit in a backpack. And so we went out to Cave Junction. Um, I ran into an old buddy of mine that I knew. And he was like, hey, Jeremy, um, I, if you're, if you're going to be starting something up out here, I've got this guest house that I just remodeled and you and your buddy Tano can just live there for free. Come on out. I'm like, sweet! <laughs> you know, scores, we show up and it's like this little shack with some bunk beds. It's just like the school ministry house. I'm like, this is awesome. This is totally the Lord, you know? And I'm like, how do you start a church? I don't know. Let's go to the park. 
We'll meet skate kids and stuff and tell them about Jesus. So literally, we'd go out to the park and we'd, you know, get a guitar out and play a guitar and, and the kids would kind of come around and we'd share with them about Jesus out of that, you know, little 30-person Bible study started and, you know, I still, I, I didn't have work at the time. And so every once in a while, a guy would come along and he'd be like, hey, you want to help me build a fence? And we had this one lady who, who just had like a bumper crop of zucchini squash. And so she would just come with like 50 pounds of squash, you know. So me and Tano lived on top ramen and squash. Matter of fact, I'll tell you, this is a true story. Tano can't eat squash to this very day. <laughs> it ruined him for life. He, can't, he won't even look at it, you know. Uh, but we lived on, on squash. We made like squash burritos because any, you know, we didn't have plates. And so anything you could stuff into a tortilla was like golden, you know. So we'd make like squash burritos with like eggs and squash, <laughs> you know. Maybe sprinkle some top ramen seasoning on the top, you know, it was, it was golden. But God provided for us. He took care of us, you know. He, he met our needs. I, I remember when me and my, ha- my wife got married, Tano moved back over here to Medford and and me and my wife were looking for a place to live out there. Now, um, she was, you know, used to being responsible and taking care of everything that needs to be taken care of as a responsible member of society. I, on the other hand, was like a, a burned out druggie who was used to staying at flop houses and, you know, whatever else. So I was like good with whatever. So we're talking budget, you know, like, okay, so we got to find a place to live. What, uh, what can we afford? I'm like, well... If I do two fences a month, yeah, probably like 300 bucks a month rent. She's like, what? You can't, you can't live on that. I'm like, it's what I got. <laughs> you know? Maybe 350? 350? I might be able to squeeze out 350? <laughs> She's like, no way. Out of the blue, this guy who owns a welding business over in Cave Junction calls me up and he says, uh, Hey, uh, I, I, heard you're, I heard you're looking for uh, a place. I've got, I just moved out of this old house and whatnot, and um, why don't you just come check it out? I'm like, well, I can't afford a whole lot. I wasn't thinking like a whole house, maybe like an apartment or, or something like that. He says, well, just come see, and, uh, and we'll talk price. And so when we drive up my soon-to-be wife is sitting next to me in the car and she's expecting, because I took her to these other cabins that were like, they were built in like 1902, you know. They had a log foundation that was slowly eroding (laughs) underneath of them, you know. And she's like, no way, you're not making me live in this little rat hole. And, And then we pull up and it's like a manicured lawn, nice, a really nice house. The kitchen was kind of unfinished and whatnot, but it like had a wood stove and everything else. All the, all, everything was there. And um, <laughs> so we pull up and she's like, how much does he want for? I'm like, I don't know. Uh, it looks like it might be kind of out of our price range. And so we start talking. He says, how, how's $350 a month sound? That was the Lord. You see, when God calls you to something, he makes a way. He's the one, when you're under authority, he bears responsibility for you. See how that works? When you come under the authority of Jesus, he says, I take ownership of your life. Your problems are my problems, and I'm going to work it out. 
Now, when I was young, that was easy to believe. Now that I'm older, I feel, I've got three kids and a wife, and I, I find myself wrestling with things like security, wrestling with you know, what's gonna happen in the future, and ministry isn't that stable, and what if I tank really bad on a sermon, and you know, I get axed the next day. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff happens. What happens then? And the Lord has to remind me, Jeremy, if you are under my authority, I take care of the details. It's the wonderful thing about being members of his kingdom and being commissioned by the king. He looks after his own. So Jesus sends his guys out ill-equipped. There was a rule from the Jewish rabbis that you could not enter the temple area with a staff, shoes, or a money bag because you wanted to avoid the appearance of being engaged in any other business other than the service of the Lord. So the disciples are engaged in such a kind of holy work. In a sense, there's a sense in which using the traditions of the rabbis, Jesus is laying claim to the earth. You see that? Wherever the disciples go is his house. That's kind of the idea. Now, it's also significant that the forbidden money bag may be the kind of, that was frequently used by itinerant philosophers and religious uh, people for begging. You know, they would give a good sermon or some sort of oratory and then they would hold out the, the money bag. And this still happens in Israel today. If you, you see the Hasidic Jews, they have got big wide brim hats and the long black coats and the curly cues that kind of come down. And they go to the wailing wall every day and they, they bob up and down and pray for Israel and then they go to the streets and they beg and they, you know, their, their thinking is, well, if I'm doing this spiritual work, then you should take care of the financial things that are a part of my, my existence. And he says, no, I don't want you to be like those guys. You just go. You go, I'll take care of you. Now, here is the kind of the big idea. The minimum of provisions was to call out the maximum of faith in the disciples. That's the idea. Why does he send them out ill-equipped? Why does he tell them to take nothing? Why does he limit them even from taking care of the practical things in life? He does so to maximize their faith, to put them in a position of absolute dependence upon him. What, what do you lack? What are you lacking? Is it peace? Provision? Power? Could it be that God has put you by his sovereignty in that exact place so that you might find your needs met in him alone, that he might prompt in you and stir in you a heart of faith that says, God, I look to you and to you alone. You're my source. Well, Jesus then goes on to anticipate the rejection of his disciples. He says, don't take anybody, anything with you. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. In verse 11, if, an, if any place will not receive you, 
and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake the dust off that is in your feet as a testimony against them. This was a, a, a practice of traveling Jews if they had to go into a foreign country. When they left that foreign country and came back on Israeli soil, they would take their clothes and shake out all the dust of a foreign land off onto the ground and click the dust off their sandals. As they're saying, no, you know, I'm, I'm back home. I'm back in God's country. God's territory. In a sense, he's saying to the disciples, listen, it's not going to be as successful as you think. You're not going to just go out and everything is just going to fall into place and everything's awesome. And you have this big movement that you're a part of. No, you're going to go and like, people aren't going to like you. They're going to think you're weird. They think you're dumb. They're going to think your message is dumb. Shake it off. Don't let it stick to you. You know, um, my experience has been the one thing that makes me shy about sharing the gospel with people are the times that I've been rejected. And I want to go through the rejection again. You know what I mean? I want to go through the, oh, maybe I didn't do it right. Oh, maybe I I would have said this. I just would have said this. You know, I go through that whole battle that's in in my heart. And he says, no, listen, this is what you do. You're going to get rejected. This is a part of it. You shake it off and you go to the next person. Shake it off. Just keep moving forward. The kingdom of God is a, is a kingdom that's advancing in the world. Your job is not to convince people, cajole people, manipulate people, save people. That's God's job. Your job is to proclaim what I've done. He sends them out and tells them to anticipate rejection. And then the disciples see God work. And they see him work in the gospel. In verse 12, it says this. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. And they healed them. The disciples in in going out, in, in, in being obedient to the Lord, they, they begin to go out talking about God's kingdom. And when they do that, they begin to see the hand of God working. They see it in the gospel. They see it in the proclamation of the advent of the kingdom. Here, here, here's the idea. As they go out, they're saying something, right? What are they saying? Are they saying, Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Is that what they're saying? No, because he hadn't done that yet, Right? They're saying, listen, God's been promising for a long time that this kingdom is coming, that there's a kingdom coming in which righteousness will reign, God's people will be made whole, and the king himself, God himself, will be among his people. That time has come. It's here, right now. They're they're proclaiming the advent of the kingdom. They're proclaiming the arrival of the king, the one that God said was going to come. He's here. He's now here. And they're proclaiming what to do in response or the action of repentance. So the advent of the, king, the, uh, of the kingdom, the arrival of the king, and the action of repentance. When the apostles went out to preach to men, they did not create a message. They weren't sermon writers. They were proclaimers of a reality. To them, in their minds, they were emissaries of a king who is establishing now his kingdom. Now, let's say you're in Palestine in the first century. 
and you're, you're there, and, and one of the Caesars dies. Let's say it's Caesar Nero, right? Caesar Nero dies. Now there's a new king in his place. Domitian has now taken his place, okay? Gospel proclaimers, which were usually military dudes, came out and they proclaimed the good news. There's a new king for Rome. Was there a choice in that? Were, were you waiting? Were they hoping to sell you on that? Like, hey, you know, there's this new king. I really hope you come under his authority because, you know, he's a really nice guy. And boy, yeah, if you do, your life will be really blessed. Is that what they were doing? No. They're saying, hey, this is news. This is an event. It took place. New power, new control, new kingdom, right? When the apostles are sent by Jesus, they're sent with that kind of attitude. Listen, like it or not, there's a new king in town. Doesn't matter what you do with that. You're either under his authority or not under his authority. You either submit yourself and surrender yourself or you don't submit yourself and don't surrender yourself. But the kingdom is here and you're going to have to deal with it. The promises of God have happened. This is true. What are you going to do? How will you respond? Here's, let, me get, let me give you one suggestion. Repent. Start there. Start right here at the heart level. Say, I surrender. You got it. You have authority. So they see God at work in the, in the gospel as they make proclamation. They see it in victory over the enemy as they cast out demons. Remember the song of Satan since the very beginning has been always, I will sit on the throne. I will sit in the sides of the north from Isaiah chapter 14. I'm going to establish my throne and people are going to worship me. That's been his proclamation. That's what caused him to fall in the very beginning. And now... Jesus is coming and he's saying, no man, your kingdom is overthrown. Look, you can't even keep your own territory. Because in my name, all authority and all power has been given. You see, the disciples now, they're experiencing just how far this kingdom is reaching into the world. It's not just with the proclamation or a, um, you know, there's a new government. It's, it's reaching into the spirit world. It's reaching in, into the very foundations of hell itself and demonic control. And God is taking over all of it. He's laying claim to territory that Satan has said is his, and he's saying, nah, nah, it's mine. They see it in victory over the enemy. They see it in the miraculous. Throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah 25, there, um, throughout the Old Testament, there were always promises accompanying the promised kingdom would come. So Isaiah 25, 6 through 9 says this, that, that there will be a feast of food, a feast of well-aged wine, does that sound familiar with any of the miracles that Jesus did? Bread being multiplied, wine being multiplied. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Think of Lazarus, I think of the widow of Nain. Isaiah 29, 18, the deaf shall hear, the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 4 through 7, the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, the mute shall sing. 
Isaiah 42, 18, the deaf shall hear, the blind shall see. Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, the poor hear the good news, the brokenhearted are bound, and liberty is given to all the captives. Okay, as the miracles are happening around the, the apostles, the disciples, as they go out, they are seeing the promises that have been attached to the Old Testament, are, they're happening. This really is it. This is the kingdom that God has been telling us about. Their anointing with oil is the consecration of those that God says are his. Anything that was a part of the temple of, of God or a part of God's house, anything that was a part of it was to be anointed with oil. It was consecrated as unto the Lord. When a, a sick person is anointed with oil, what you're saying is, God, this person belongs to you. Heal them, please. Or if you don't heal them, give them the grace to endure this trial. They're yours. We offer them to you. And they're seeing all kinds of results. You see, here is the reality, and this is my final thought. Here's the reality. The gospel to the disciples did not just mean that Jesus died on a cross for my sins. That part hadn't even happened yet. The gospel was the inauguration of a new kingdom with new rule and the fulfillment of tons of promises from the Old Testament. The gospel had an effect on the world prior to the cross even. The gospel had an effect on the world prior to the proclamation of sins being forgiven. You see that? And the gospel had such an effect that the authority of God extended to the poor, the brokenhearted, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the mute, and all those oppressed by the kingdom of the enemy. And this is what I want us to think about tonight. That kingdom started 2,000 years ago with a small Judean group it's now expanded to 2 billion people worldwide. How? By the unstoppable good news that there is one throne that rules the universe and one man who sits on it. Jesus Christ. Hey, nothing that we are facing as believers or that we ever will face is outside of or beyond the authority of God. What does it look like if God's kingdom invades earth? Looks like you and me. Looks like us. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Have your way in us, God. I pray that you would meet your people, that the reminder of the gospel this evening would be... Um, like nourishment for their souls and that they might find themselves, Lord, enjoying all the freedom and the victory that you've given through that gospel proclamation. Thank you for paying for our sins as well. And thank you, Lord, that the gospel doesn't just affect our forgiveness, but it affects every area of life, every infirmity, every weakness, everything that we touch. Lord, that's all a part of your redeeming work, the, the desire that you have to, to rule over every area of our lives. So we just surrender our hearts to you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to partner with you in all of that, to see your work and to go with your authority into, into life and into this world. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.